Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us to hear how these scriptures apply to us. As Sam said at the beginning, we may be quick to imagine that we are not prone to the same tendencies of idolatry, but Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds and hearts to hear and receive what you have for us this morning. So Lord, come convict us, challenge us, and ultimately encourage us in your love. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The phrase that came to mind for me this week as I was preparing was a paraphrase of something that John Owen, the great Puritan, said. John Owen said, uh, be killing your sins or your sins will be killing you. And I thought, I'm just going to paraphrase that. Kill your idols or your idols will be killing you. That's, I think, what we discover as we go in this passage this morning. And as Sam said, I, and I think he's right, that our tendency is going to be to see, well, you know, I don't make a golden calf. I don't have any statues or, you know, images that I bow down and worship to. But as we look at the New Testament, as we follow the scriptures, and as we think about what our Lord Jesus did and how he pushed things internal, you know, it's not just murder, but hatred in your heart that makes you guilty. It's not just adultery, but lust in your heart that makes you guilty. As we watch that trajectory happen, we're going to discover that actually we, just like these foolish Israelites, are prone to idolatry. And so let us listen together to what the Lord has for us. First of all, let's look at the idolatry of Israel and notice that the idolatry is rooted in the motivations of the heart. It's not just an external behavior, not just an external breaking of a rule, but notice why Israel is motivated to do these things. In verse 1, it's, you can see the anger of the people. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. The people of Israel, in this case, are motivated by panic. As you read the, the commentaries, that's the sort of this deep, anxious, angry fear that the people have because Moses has been gone for so long, over 40 days. In their mind, Moses and possibly Yahweh himself has abandoned them there at the foot of the Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. And so they need gods to guard and guide them. And so they look to Aaron to provide them. So it's motivated by panic. It's also motivated by pride. You can see the sort of upside-down pride of the fear of man in Aaron's response in verse 2. As Aaron says to them, take off the rings of gold, and they do that, and he says, um, he doesn't respond with, didn't the Lord tell us not to worship other gods? Didn't the Lord tell us not to make idols? He immediately um, acquiesces to their sinful and immoral command of him. Because, why? It seems to be the fear of man, that he's worried about losing position or um, respect in their mind or some sort of sense of identity. It's an upside-down kind of pride that he knows better than God knows what it's going to take for Aaron to be confident, for Aaron to be in a place of security and safety. And so he takes, rather than trusting God, he takes to himself the choice of whether or not he will obey the Lord and whether or not he'll obey the people. The fear of man is ultimately pride. Moreover, you see Aaron 
um, trying to redirect the people. In verse 4, he says, let's have a feast to Yahweh after the calf has been made. Let's have a feast to Yahweh. He kind of does this overture of like, at least I tried, which is reflected in his um, his report to Moses, right? That (laughs) this blame shifting, you know how evil these people are, Moses. Even though it was him, he acquiesced completely to what they did. And then he said, we all laughed when he said it, right? And out came this calf, you know? And that's when your teenagers give you their excuse and you give them the slow blink, you know? You're just like, really? Like, I just can imagine Moses' face there. They're motivated by by pride. They have somehow got in their mind that they they will determine how they're going to worship God. Aaron has the fear of man. And they are, rather than obeying God's very specific commands about worship, which we've read over the last you know, as we talk about priests and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the altar and so on and so forth, God has very specific opinions about how he's to be worshipped, and instead they presume that they know how to worship, that they know how, that they know how to uh, fulfill this desire they have for a God who can guide and guard them. And then finally, the, the real truth comes out. In verse 6, we discover that it's not just pride, it's not just panic, but the passions of the flesh that come out. In verse 6, we see the carnal passions of Israel. They, they make the sacrifices which are supposed to be for the Lord, and they turn them into a feast. And then the ESV euphemistically says, and they rose up to play. And that is, that's, in the Hebrew, that's 100% a, a euphemism for um, sexual. That's a sexual sin. Um, this is an orgiastic feast. Because if they worship a different God, a, a different God will let them live differently right? And that's so often the case, even when you're doing evangelism or pastoral counseling and pastoral care, the real objection is not up here in the intellect. The real objection is in the heart at the realization of what this God, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will require of me, because we are so often motivated by the passions of our flesh. And that's interesting, as you follow through the Um, the scripture story, you see how often sexual immorality and idolatry are tied to each other, right? All these commands about not intermarrying with the people of the land. Why? Because that immorality always leads to idolatry. It happens to the people and the judges. It happens to Solomon himself, and it's kind of um, personified in Revelation 17, Babylon, the great harlot, who is both the symbol of immorality as well as idolatry. So, It's not just about the thing they did on the outside. It's not just about the wrong behavior. It's about what was motivating that. They were looking for someone to puff them up because they were proud. They were looking for someone to assuage their fears because they were panicking. And they were looking for someone who would indulge the passions of their flesh. And they said, well, let's just make our own gods. Cut out the middleman. Let's make gods that we're in control of. And now what does this mean for us? It means if idolatry is rooted in the motivations of the heart, then it means that if you have a heart, meaning a a center of desires and emotions, then you are in danger of having idols. That there's an internal type of idolatry that we need to watch out for, even though we may not make bulls or calves of gold. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says covetousness is idolatry. This is like the exact quote. Covetousness is idolatry. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, he says that people who 
um, reject God and live a sort of pagan lifestyle, their God is their belly, their desires. The passions of their flesh have become their God. In Romans 1, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, he says that the root of sin is that people have exchanged the glory of God for the worship of created things. Rather than looking to God for those deepest needs and longings that we have, we begin to look to people and position and material things and the reputation or um, the, the praise of man. We begin to look elsewhere rather than the creator. And as we follow this trajectory, you could follow this trajectory all throughout the, the history of the church as theologians and pastors reflect on this, that there's a deep type of idolatry in our hearts. Martin Luther, actually, when he uh, was teaching the catechism, in the larger catechism of the Lutheran church, he says, here's what it means to have no other gods before me. So this is commandment one. Here's what Luther says. It means, take heed that you allow me alone to be your God, that you never seek another. Whatever good you lack, look to God for it and seek it in God. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, come and cling to God. God will supply your want and help and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cling to nor rely on any other. Today, uh, November 13th, is actually the commemoration day of Charles Simeon, the great um, 17th and 18th, or 18th and 19th century evangelical Anglican. And Simeon, he, he summed up idolatry this way. He said, the loving and serving of the creature more than the creator, in whatever way we do it, is the essence of idolatry, as much without the external symbol as with one. And he, so he's point, he's, they're both pointing to that inner reality that you can have an idol in your heart. You can turn a person or a position or a dream or a desire into the thing that you look to ultimately to assuage your anxieties and to fulfill your longings. So we don't set up golden calves, I don't think, but we are certainly prone to looking to people and things besides God to give us safety and security and joy, to fill our deepest longings and our deepest needs. And the, and the reason this is bad for us is because idolatry always leads to devastation and death. You see that in, in the story of Israel. Idols never deliver what they promise, you know? The security they were looking for, the, um, the sense of importance that they were looking for, the fulfillment of the passions of their flesh that they were looking for, ultimately the, the idols don't give what they promise. In, verses, in verse 2, we saw that Aaron asked for the gold of the people, right? And so they make an idol out of gold, and then when Moses comes down the mountain, we didn't read this part, but when he comes down the mountain, he breaks the, the idol up into small pieces, he burns it, and he takes the ashes, and he puts it in water and makes them drink it. And so now their gold, their riches, have literally become refuse. They've become impoverished because of their idolatry. In verse 10, uh, rather than putting them in a position of safety, now the Lord's anger has been provoked against them. So their idols that promise them all those deep, you know, to fix the deep longings and anxieties, it actually doesn't deliver on its promise. And not only that, not only does it not deliver on its promise, but ultimately it asks you to sacrifice for it, right? Ultimately, it asks you to become poorer. It asks you to become uh, less human. It, it asks you to, to step into a place where you're under the wrath of God. Idols never deliver what they promise. There's a vivid illustration of this. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit PG-13. I apologize. Um, 
2016, Time Magazine art, um, published an article entitled Pornography and the Threat to Virility. And in it, uh, Belinda Luscombe, who's the, the author, tells how young men ha who have, quote, been marinated in porn as adolescents and young adults are now unable to experience any sort of response to a real life woman. That their need for intimacy has now been so rewired and twisted that what's on the screen produces more of a, a, a response in them than a real live woman. One of the, the, one of the, um, the men featured in the article, he says, when I think about it, I've wasted years of my life looking for a computer or a mobile phone to provide something it is not capable of providing. The idol of lust, when pursued in a ungodly and immoral way, not only does it not deliver the fulfillment that it promises, but it actually takes away the possibility of the fulfillment that you began the, the whole process longing for. And greed is like that too, right? Uh, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more until you begin to forsake your family and forsake your relationships and maybe start to do things that are in the gray area and then maybe eventually do things that are outright immoral or illegal and you end up with way less than when you started. And we can do that with good things even. Did you know you can idolize good things? You can idolize your children. If you put your children so at the center of your world and your, your hopes and your security and your comfort and your joy is all based on them, you're putting a burden on them that they cannot bear. And when they grow up, they, will not, they cannot get away from you fast enough because you have put an unreasonable burden. You've worshipped them. You've worshipped the created thing rather than the creator. And so rather than the deep need for the relationship that you have for them, they're going to flee and you're going to be estranged. Every type of idolatry is like that. If you put on anything in this world the burden that only God can fulfill, it will ultimately crush that person, that thing. It will push you into more and more immorality. Idols never deliver what they promise. They always take and they never give. And idolatry, so it leads to devastation and it ultimately leads to death. In verse 19, just before the second half of our reading, Moses comes down the mountain and he breaks the tablets. Now, Moses has an anger problem, but this is not Moses flying off the handle. This is Moses symbolically reenacting what, this, what the people of Israel have caused to happen. He breaks the tablets because the covenant is broken. This relationship, this special relationship, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth, a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation. And we, we haven't heard from Israel since chapter 24 where they had this feast and they said, yes, Lord, we want to do everything that you commanded. We're in. We're all in. We love you. And they're, they're quiet for eight chapters. And the very next thing we hear of them is this scene of idolatry. They have broken the covenant. They've broken the commandment to not covet. They've broken the commandment to not commit adultery. They've broken the commandment to, to bear God's name rightly. It says later in the passage that they have become an object of derision to their neighbors. They've broken the commandment not to make idols, and they've broken the commandment to not to worship anyone besides the Lord. They are under the condemnation of God because they've broken this covenant. And in verse 28, we saw 3,000 of them died under God's judgment because of this idol. And then we ended on such a cheery note in verse 35, and the Lord sent a plague on them. Not only did he take 3,000 of them, but he also sent a plague on them at some un undetermined time. 
Idolatry ultimately leads to death. It leads to estrangement from God, judgment, and death. They were motivated, right? Their panic, their pride, their passions motivated them to, to make this idol. And instead of getting their needs fulfilled and having their longings met, they are met with humiliation and judgment and death. In the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, flee from idols. And he said, at the beginning of that passage, he says, don't desire evil. Don't desire evil. But these things in Exodus chapter 32 are written for our example that you might flee from idols. So how do you, how do you know if you have an idol in your heart? A couple of diagnostic questions to reflect on. How would you answer these two or how would you fill out these two sentences? If I have blank, my life will be completely satisfying. Or if I don't have blank, my life would be devastating. If really, truly, ultimately, you can't put Jesus in those blanks, then you should ask the Lord to show you if there's an idol in your heart. We're made to worship. We're going to worship something. I was reflecting this morning how, how as parents, we, we're teaching our children what they should really worship, who they should really worship, by the, the decisions that we make, by the way that we interact with them, by the way um, we inhabit our faith or don't. We're teaching them what really matters. We may, not, we may be church people, but if what we worship is really career, or what we worship is really um, money, or what we worship is really sports, or what we worship is really something else, Kids aren't dumb. They'll, they'll see through it, and they'll see what our idols really are. Paul says, flee from idols. Flee from idols. Why? Because it only leads to death. Kill your idols, or they will be killing you. And that's, that's the bad news. You know, I'm a, I'm a gospel preacher. I love to preach the good news. I love to preach the assurance of salvation. That's like my whole desire in life and ministry. But there is bad news before the good news. The bad news is that every single one of us is prone to do the same thing that the people of Israel did. We will, like John Calvin said, we are a forge for idols. We just churn them out. We set our hearts and our emotions and our desires and our longings on, on anything and everything all day long. Without Christ, we are utter, utterly, utterly hopeless. We don't love God with our heart, soul, and mind. We love everything else besides God. Or we might love God, but we don't want to put him in the second position. We all, first, uh, Romans 1 again, we all exchange the truth about God and rather worship the created thing. And that's true of Christians. That's true of, of non-Christians. And uh, on our own, without Jesus, we stand as people who've broken the covenant. We stand as people who are under judgment, under wrath, and estranged from God. So we need help. We need someone to do something about it. In verse 31 and 32, Moses gets it. Moses gets it. He goes back to the Lord and he says, Lord, take me and let them go free. Don't break your covenant with me. Take it out on me, Lord. Yes, they've done a great sin. That, that phrase is used multiple times. These, these people have sinned a great sin, but let me be the substitute for them. Let me be the mediator for them. But God says, Moses, I can't take you 
I can't take your life. He doesn't explain why in this passage, but as we look out at Scripture, we know why. Because Moses, too, is a sinner. We saw last week the problem with the high priest in the Old Covenant was that they had to sacrifice for their own sins before they could sacrifice for your sins. And so Moses could never be the mediator that we need. But this is the wonder of the gospel, that God so deeply loves us that he sent his own son into the world so that we could be delivered from wrath and judgment and enslavement to idolatry and we could be reconciled to him and given eternal life in Jesus' name. There's only one person who can be the mediator. There's only one life that is so spotless it can be the sacrifice for sin and so valuable that it can pay for all of our sin from, from now unto eternity. And God so loves us, right? It's not that Jesus has to go into the throne room of heaven and convince God to love us. It's that God so deeply loves us that he provides the mediator that we need and without whom we would be forever estranged. If I could put it most darkly and bluntly, Idolatry is as if the bride has prostituted herself on the wedding night and the minister, Aaron, has been the pimp. And the gospel says that the groom loves us so much that he gives up his life, takes our shame, takes our guilt in order to set us free. That is the assurance that we have in the gospel. So as we close, kill your idols or they will kill you. Remember that idols never deliver on what they promise, but Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us if we confess our sins. That idols will ultimately ask you to sacrifice for them, but Jesus has given up his life for us. And idols only bring devastation and death, but in Jesus Christ, through faith in his death and resurrection, we have eternal life with God and all the deepest longings of our heart will be met in him. So let's kill our idols. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, for the strength to do all that I've just said. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us through the gift of Jesus' body and blood, through the gift of the preaching of your word, through the gift of the communion of saints. Strengthen us. Help us see your immeasurable goodness and to be delivered from the foolishness of idolatry. Good Lord, deliver us. In Jesus' name, amen.